Where is the time gone? Or I can't believe it's already. And I'm told by those that are older, which I think we've already established who that is, <laughs> that life is short. And the further along you go, the faster it goes. Everybody wants more hours in the day, more days in a week. And then we still can't seem to do everything that we want to with the time that we've got. But if you remember, it wasn't very long ago that time was taking forever and it wasn't moving fast enough. Remember last week, we had a bunch of kids up here and they were talking about all the presents under their tree and Christmas couldn't get here fast enough just a couple of weeks ago and now it's already been gone for a week. And those toys are going to be forgotten soon. And the excitement has finally played out into a normalcy. I think the first thing then that we realize is just how little control we have over the movement of time. Little's kind of tongue-in-cheek. We have no control over the movement of time. We can't bring on one season sooner any more than you can hold off another one from coming on. And even if you fill every single day with busyness. But what's strange is the thinking that that produces in a human. At first, you want to try to manage what you have better. You want to squeeze all the significance you can out of the time you have. But even then, that relentless march continues with just such an inexorable certainty day after day. So then that thinking after you fight and try to manage and try to do everything just right and the march keeps going, the thinking starts to shift a little bit and it starts to, whether you think you're philosophical or not, the thinking starts to turn there and you start to ask questions like, man, what's the point? What can I actually control? What is my significance? What's my place in the grand scheme of things? Or somebody said, is there even a grand scheme of things. So in Ecclesiastes, we're going to be in 3, 1 through 15. We find Solomon taking this head on. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. God gave him wisdom and an understanding heart, as the Bible says. Not only that, but God said, no one before you has been as wise as you, and no one after you ever will be again. Now that's pretty significant, especially to a people who claim to believe the Bible is the word of God. It means that we need to stop and we need to take a hard look at what he says. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon has applied his big brain to some of the bigger questions of life, some of the hard questions, some pretty troubling observations, if you remember, that he's gone through here. It seems at a first glance almost dismal, if you remember he says, everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. Everything is, is futility. That The Hebrew word, hebel, they would have translated it vanity in the 1600s, but the way that we would use it would be, everything's futile. Everything's meaningless. What's the point? And he lays it all out in just depressing chapter after depressing chapter. He says, what's the point? Then he comes to chapter 3, and he starts to pull it out, and he jots down some lines that we want to pick apart today, starting in verse 1. 
For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. And a time for love and a time for hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business with which God has given the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. That which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak to us today out of your word in spite of me. I ask that you, you would do your work and that we'd understand and know you better. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so first of all, what we see there is we see a cycle. That's what he's showing us. There in verse 1, you can see the bookends of the cycle. A time for birth and a time for death. We come on the scene and we leave. We start and then we end. But life goes on. No matter what we do, our lives will have these elements in them. At some point in your life, you're going to be born, you're going to die. You're going to grow, you're going to heal, you're going to tear, you're going to cry, you're going to be happy. You're going to gain things and you're going to lose things. That's the point of this, is that there is a cycle. He's not saying that at some point you're going to need to kill somebody, fight a war, learn how to sow and throw rocks at somebody. He's not, he's not stating the moral quality of each of these things. He's summing up the big seasons in any given life. And no matter what, we can't escape the seasons any more than you can stop the snow from falling or beg it to fall here or the temperature from rising. How much control do you actually have? Can you break out of this cycle? What we see through history is if someone you know, with enough gumption tries, maybe they could change things. Maybe they could, they could be the master of their own fate and do it differently. The point here is that we're subjected to this pattern no matter who we think we are. So think of it like this, if you need proof of this. Someone, some powerful person, some big personality can set out and they can intend that they will fundamentally change history in the world forever. They'll break this cycle. They'll 
free mankind from the cycle. And they'll be masters of their own fate. Now, typically these people, if you look back through history, we remember them as villains. But when they set out, they were first great political figures, great leaders that were going to do something different. But to do that in an effort to get out of that, to get out of the normal cycles, the futility of mankind, first, what did they have to do? Well, they had to be born. They had to grow and tear and heal. Then they begin their work of fixing things by hating the status quo, declaring war on the way things are. They pluck up or tear down and cast away the present system only to build up a new one, plant something new, sew up the fabric of society just in time to age out and die. And another generation comes on the scene. Even in an effort to overcome the cycle, we perpetrate it. But there's something in that that we don't like, in that inescapability. Notice how all of these things add up to zero. For one life, there's a death. Something grown, there's something plucked. Something built, there's something torn down. For something taken, there's something lost. For something kept, there's something sacrificed. And the word that Ecclesiastes is best known for is vanity or meaningless. Then we see the problem. He goes on and on until verse 9. He says, what did we gain? Well, the obvious mathematical answer is nothing. We're all subjected to this cycle and all end up at the same spot, so what's the point? There's something in us that wants to accomplish. There's something in us that, that wants to gain. Or we feel as though we're meaningless. We feel as though this is futile. That's the conclusion he comes to. What's the point? If we're not gaining, what's the point? We begin to shape our lives towards fulfillment and only to find that there's no end to the search. So is there a point? Something in us that wants to gain. We want to move forward. We don't want to simply exist. We want to see the markers the proof of our exercising dominion over the earth, that command that we were given in Genesis. We want to have some kind of control or mastery over something significant. As we get older and our ambitions then that become more shaped by reality, our dreams maybe get adjusted to more realistic goals. Maybe instead of owning a thousand acres, you just like to pay off your house. Instead of cattle on a thousand hills, maybe just one corner of the hill and a cat. Instead of a fortune and leisure, maybe just a nice vacation every 10 years. But then as Solomon says earlier, the same end comes to all people. The haves and the haves nots. What's the deal? Why are we this way? The fundamental issue that is seen through the entire book of Ecclesiastes is the fall of mankind, the fall of Adam. The point at which humankind chose sin and changed the earth. Not only was sin and death and thorns and sickness introduced, but something else was introduced. Futility. Romans 8, 20 through 21 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we see that human sin has brought futility into the world. Do you remember the main temptation behind the fall? 
eat the fruit and you will what? You will be like God. To become a God in your own right. We would then, we would be masters of our own fate. And the threads of that first sin run through every sin ever committed. Placing myself in the position of God. Out of all the futile acts of our lives, this is the first and the most defining. That I can have some of the attributes of God. I can, I can have a godness over my life. No matter how much you accomplish, a path of self-dominion is a path to meaningless. It's futile because we are not God. We were never meant to carry the burden of deity. And when we try, we only make things worse. But due to our fallen nature, that is what we do every day. Every single sin and subsequent trial is because in one way or another, we continually try to make little gods of ourselves. We place ourselves on a pedestal. And then every single offense that comes your way is against our little God. And that leads to our pride being inflamed. Leads to anger and hatred. And here's what that does. Look at verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in his time. When we step into the role of God in our lives... We suck the beauty out of it. We overturn the right order of life and corrupt it. And that corruption ultimately leads to, oddly enough, a lack of significance. It does the exact opposite of what we intend. When we are the most significant person in our own lives, we produce futility. Then how should we respond to this? Whenever we take this look at God... Whenever we see what we've done, who God is, how should we respond? Well, we should respond in humility. We should respond in humility before God and also a confidence. The first thing we should do is we need to put God where he belongs in our lives. This is the fundamental answer to how to have a meaningful life, how to put significance in your life. There's an old quote by Tozer. Let man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can thereafter do no common act. Now what that means is that if you put God at the front of your life, put God at the forefront of your life, then everything that you do becomes eternally significant. Submit yourself to God, and it'll change everything about your life. Make God the actual God of your life, not just in name, not just on Sunday mornings, not just every once in a while, but in reality, in function. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. This is Jesus talking. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. If God is the one who ultimately provides your basic needs, then that kind of changes the nature of work, doesn't it? God says, put me first and I'll take care of all this little stuff. He says, 
Don't be anxious. Most of our anxiety is based around how am I going to make a living? How am I going to pay the bills? What am I going to do next? He says, don't worry about what are we going to eat? What are you going to drink? What are you going to wear? I got to have a roof over my head. I got to put clothes on my backs. I got to pay the bills. He says, don't worry about that. He says, the Gentiles seek after these things. In this, that would have meant the people who live as if there is no true God. That's what they chase after. If you find that to be, this is a side note. If you find that to be the source of your anxiety, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to feed my family? How am I going to do all this? Then here you are compared to the people who do not follow the true God. That's kind of a slap in the face. He says the Gentiles seek after these things. But your heavenly Father knows that you need these. God is not surprised by the fact that you need food, that you've got to pay your bills, that you need clothes, that you need, that you need a roof over your head. He knows it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Get God and his righteousness, put it at the front of your life, and he'll take care of this little stuff. The big stuff in our lives, the main thing that you spend all your time doing, making a living. He says, you put me first and I'll take care of that. Look at verses 10 through 13. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This tells us that God has given us work to keep us busy. Okay, so he said, I'm the one that provides for your needs. So work is for something else. I'm the one that makes sure that if you put me rightly in your life, I'm the one that gets you what you need. Here, work is not equated with survival and making a living at all. He says he's given us work to keep us busy. And more than that, it's a gift. Well, that also changes the nature of work, doesn't it? We look at work as a brutal necessity. I got to get up and go to work. Got to work a job. Got to go do this. And then he tells us that it's beautiful in a specific way and time that he designed. That it's appropriate. Some translations may say he's made everything appropriate in his time. It's appropriate that we stay busy and we endure these cycles that make up human life. But it can appear meaningless to us. That's the conclusion that we draw. That's the conclusion that he has drawn through Ecclesiastes at this point. What's the point? It can appear meaningless to us because it doesn't fulfill. There's that word, fulfill. Everybody wants to be fulfilled. But it doesn't fulfill that sin nature desire to be God in our own lives. Unless I can gather my little crowns around me. We tend to believe that if our work doesn't lend to the building of our own significance and our own legacy, that if my work isn't leading to that, then we're failures. 
But what we learn here is something different. This shows you the gap between our perspective and God's work. We're fallen, and the conclusions we draw apart from God are appropriately dismal. Here's the point. We think that it is what we are doing that gives significance. But he says it is that we are doing. We think what, where, how, how much, and what did you get done? But what we see here, it's not what you're doing, it's that you're doing. We were created to glorify God by reflecting his image in creation. Number one job of humanity, glorify God, reflect the image of creation. This means that we plant and we grow and we build and we raise families, we produce goods. We go through that cycle. Solomon tells us that these things are actually a God-given gift. The cycle doesn't make life meaningless. We make the cycle meaningless if we do not place God rightly in our lives. That's this point. A part of placing God appropriately in our lives is recognizing how inferior we are to him. Thank God. I make a pathetic God. I have to have a God bigger and better than me because I am a pathetic God. Solomon says that we have an awareness of eternity, something bigger, something more. He's placed eternity in their hearts. We understand existence in a way that's different than the rest of creation. I think that's how we should think of that line. We have an awareness. We're not like the animals. We're not like the animals who strives for survival. We're, we're doing more than surviving. But God, then it says, has not allowed us to see the whole picture. The ultimate God perspective is beyond us. We know enough to know that there's more than our perspective. But God hasn't allowed, allowed us to see all of it. And it says that even though we have an awareness of more, we do not have a big enough perspective to understand it all. Again, this is from the wisest man that God ever made. So then if it's impossible for us to figure it out, then what do we do? Well... He tells us. We get back to the uncommon, common work that he's given us and do right. It means we do what is at hand and we do what's right. Serve God, love others, and be satisfied with the simple. Again, it turns back to the simple things. The simple gifts. And everybody knows this. Every Hallmark movie you've ever watched, everything always ends up with the same cliche. Well, it turns out it was the simple things in life. Everybody's deathbed quote, well, it turns out it was the little things. Turns out that's what made up life because that was the gift that God gave you from the beginning. It says, enjoy your work. Eat good food. Enjoy your family. If that's true, then we should live our life, first of all, in humility, and then we should live it with a sense of confidence. So it's like a child at night going to bed, peacefully, knowing that daddy is sitting up next to the fire in the next room. They don't have to know it all. They don't have to understand it all. They don't have to know how the bills get paid. 
or how the heater works or where the food comes from, but they do have to know him. That's something worth working towards as you look into your next year. The more you know God, the Father who's sitting up at night keeping a watch over you, the more happy and content you are with what you don't know. Think of a child, just absolutely carefree. Just, I mean, the biggest thing in their life is, you know, did you, did you put me to bed the right way? We have, bedtime is just, bedtime's work. If you do not say the right things to Sandy whenever you put her to bed, you have not done it well and she will not go to sleep. First of all, it was good night, I love you. You have to say it back and you have to say it back. I mean, it has to be right. And then she wanted to expound on it and good night, I love you, you're so nice. Her, she came up with this, not me. You have to repeat it back to her. Then she wanted to double down. Good night, I love you so nice a lot. You will hear these words multiple times every night at bedtime in our house. That's the biggest thing. The biggest things to little kids are small things. The burden ends up resting on the human. On the, on the human. They are humans most of the time. I think. I'm still working that one out. The burden rests on the adult. And over and over again, God is called our Father. God is called, you know, He's referred to. We're referred to as children, as sheep. And we failed to take that from it, that oh, he knows what's going on. He knows what he's doing. He knows how the heater works. He knows what to do with a hot water heater. He knows how to keep the pipes from freezing. I'm going to go to bed and snuggle up in my blanket. Do not fail to realize how big God is, how far beyond our perspective and understanding he is, how great and baffling his work is, and how good his gifts are. Look at 14 and 15. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. For God seeks what has been driven away. In simple terms, what this means is that God's work is eternal and complete. There's no missing pieces. It also says that we should have a sense of the gravity of God based on what we have been shown in creation. The evidence of God that we see in creation should be enough to determine that he is higher and holier than us. We can see enough complexity. We've been shown enough to understand that there is something to God that he is more than us, that he is greater than us, that he is higher than us. In, first, in, the, in uh, verse 15, he repeats the phrase that's, that is heard over and over again in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new on this earth, nothing new under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is kind of to state our orb of perspective, what I can see, what I can observe. In my perspective, in my perspective that God has given me, there's nothing new on this earth. God is never surprised. Nothing is hidden from him. 
Nothing is driven from him. There are no loose ends. Everything will be judged equally and rightly in the end. He has made no mistakes. That's a hard one for us to choke down in our limited perspective. Surely there's a mistake. Surely something's wrong. That's not what the wisest man on earth said. So then where's Jesus in all of this? If the earth was subjected to futility and lack of gain and a net zero, if we were confined to it, if we were subjugated to it, then Jesus is the one who has freed us from, from this futility and freed us to fruitfulness. It's because of his work, not ours. He is the answer to our fallen nature, the fix to our fallen perspective. He has redeemed or bought back our fallen work and gives us eternal significance. And as far as gain, look at what Paul says about gain. In Philippians 3, he's talking about all of his accomplishments, all of his work. He had mentioned his high education, his excellent diligence, his unmatched ambition. And then he says in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. He had done it all. He'd accomplished it. And he figured out, actually, that wasn't gain at all. That was loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ. Solomon says, what is the gain? Paul says, the gain is Christ. Jesus becomes the benefit, the gain. The one who is ultimately significant. And knowing him is the highest gain there is. Actually, if you were to sell all of your assets, your land, your business, give up your identity, risk your reputation, and count all of your accomplishments as nothing, you would be on track for the highest gain the best return on this investment called life. Everyone is in on this investment. That's what's obvious from the list of seasons. Everyone's in on this investment. Everyone goes to the cycle and everybody cashes out. If you would do the work of getting to know the God that you claim to believe in, you'll have access to ultimate significance and eternal gain. If you're anxious, uncertain, worried about the work and insignificance of your legacy, you'd better come to know the Father who's sitting up beside the fire better. We can understand from this passage that there is a gift to enjoy and a God is doing, who's doing something bigger than us. But you will take no comfort in that until you know him better. It will be no comfort to you. So this year, Liberty, pursue God grow, understand significance better, and let that change your perspective and your attitude. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would convict us, that your Holy Spirit would do its work in us, that you would guide, that you would inspire. Father, may we be thankful. Lord, this year, at the end of 2023, we are thankful for the work that you have given us to do. I ask that we would see it rightly. We are thankful for 
your son who redeemed the work, who has given us significance, meaning, meaningfulness, who has freed us from futility so that we don't have to fight the wind and live only for our own accomplishments. God, I ask that you would break open our hard hearts, that your word would do its deadly work in us, and that you would show us more and more of you, and that we would seek you rightly. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Won't you all stand?